Again, my name is uh, Mark Siner, and uh, I'm married to the daughter of Dale and Beth McCoy, Mindy Siner, and uh, I like to remind people that I'm their favorite son-in-law. Um, I'm their only son-in-law. Um, so, but I am blessed. We've been married coming in uh, August the 14th. We've been married 25 years, and uh, so I love my wife. I love my family. We have three boys with the M family, uh, Matthew. Uh, who is uh, 19, headed off to OBU this next year. Uh, Micah is uh, 17. And then Manason, uh, that's a biblical name, it's in the book of Acts, uh, is uh, 16, just turned 16 and just chomping at the bit to drive. And uh, uh, then we have two dogs, uh, Maddie and Millie. So uh, we're the M family. So, you know, father-in-laws and, and, and son-in-laws uh, and a lot of times don't make a connection, but my father-in-law and I have made a connection, and uh, uh, we made a connection through fishing, and uh, uh, he loved to fish, and I loved to fish, and, and uh, I just uh, I want you to know, as a son-in-law and a fellow follower of Christ, that I, I love my, my in-laws, and um, they are special people, and uh, if you know anything about them, you know how special they are. Um, but I love to fish. Uh, I like sports. I enjoy playing golf, uh, but I love fishing. But let me be even more specific. I love bass fishing, all right? Uh, I don't care, really care for crappie uh, fishing. I don't like cat fishing. I'm definitely not going noodling, all right? Uh, but I love bass fishing, and there's nothing greater for me to, than to be in a tube. I like being in a boat, but being in a tube on a spring morning, crisp air with a buzz bait, water still, it's just a... Uh, uh, it's just a beautiful picture of, uh, of God's creation for me. And uh, uh, I was reading uh, birthday cards and birthday wishes, and I don't, maybe you've seen this birthday card wish for fishermen, but may all your fishes come true. I love that, that statement. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but one of the most famous fishing stories ever told comes to us in the Bible. Um, and uh, uh, this is a story that has always grabbed me as a fisherman. Uh, because it's a story about a bad day of fishing uh, turned amazingly good. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to, to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. And uh, uh, at the heart of this story is the actual call to fellowship uh, uh, that was given to Peter. And um, uh, uh, I'm assuming that uh, everyone in this room is a, is a Christ follower. I found it always amazing when, we, when I come to church, nobody wants to sit in the front. And something that I've always wanted to do was when, I, and I almost did it tonight, but I didn't because this is my first time speaking here. But I was going to remove all these chairs and move the podium up so that I could be close to you. Uh, but I didn't do that. Um, but, uh, but I'm assuming that everybody here is a believer. And so... Uh, we're going to look at Simon Peter's call here because I think it's good for us at, uh, from, from time to time in our life to kind of review our own call because sometimes uh, we need clarity, sometimes we need affirmation, sometimes we lose sight of what it is that we're supposed to be about. And when we do, the best thing for us to do is to kind of go back to our call. And so uh, you might be thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not a pastor. I don't teach a class. I don't lead worship. I'm, I'm not called to ministry. But you need to know that this applies to anybody that is a child of God. Because if you're a child of God, you receive the call. And so tonight, I want to invite you to spend some time reflecting upon your call. As a matter of fact, I want to invite you right now to go back in your mind to when God issued the call for you to come, for you to follow. I want you to think about what that looked like. 
I want you to think about how that happened and what actually resulted uh, because of that. And, and, and we see in Simon Peter's call here in Luke chapter 5, 1 through 11, several things. We see a divine request. We see a divine affirmation. And as a result of this divine request and this divine affirmation comes a divine call. And with this divine call comes a threefold reality. There is a clear understanding of who Jesus is. There's a fearful reality of our sinfulness that separates us from God. And thirdly, there is an awareness and an ultimately embracing of our mission. We've been given a mission. So if I was going to title this message tonight, I would title it Fishing Matters. Fishing Matters. And here's the passage Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon, Jesus asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, for the power of your word. We thank you for the call that we have received to follow. And uh, thank you, Lord, for the, the passage of Scripture that we see tonight, uh, specifically uh, giving us understanding of, of Peter's calling. And Lord, I pray, God, that you would open our eyes tonight. Uh, give us just first and foremost, God, just affirmation of our call, our, our salvation, who we are in you and because of your Son. But Lord, I also pray, Lord, that uh, uh, God, you would, you would spur us on to the, the mission that you've given to us and help us to see clearly, God, uh, what you are trying to say to us from this passage of Scripture tonight. We love you, and we thank you. And all God's people said, amen. Well, let me give you some background and context to this passage that I think will help us kind of better understand uh, this passage and how it applies to us. Most of us are familiar with Matthew chapter 4, 18 through uh, 22, the, uh, the calling uh, uh, that Jesus gave to the four disciples. That same story is given to us in Mark chapter 1, 16 through 20. It's the, the four disciples, Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, and his brother John. And they were all fishermen. And I think we're familiar with this, this calling to discipleship. Matthew four nineteen reads, Follow me and I will what? Make you fishers of men. I know that passage by heart because my pastor, Paul Sayer, growing up, uh, said it all the time. I mean, that was his favorite passage. Uh, he was a fishers of men. And then there's Mark 1.17 that has a slight little nuance in the passage that says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Same story. But Luke chapter 5, the latter part of verse 10, reads slightly different. I want you to see it. Because here Jesus is not speaking to four disciples, four fishermen. Jesus is speaking specifically to Peter. 
And he says this, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Now, early on in ministry, when I started out, I used to kind of group this passage in Luke chapter 5 in with Mark chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 4. But when we dig into this passage of Scripture, there are some distinctive differences in Luke's gospel that we actually don't see in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel. I might ruffle some of your feathers tonight, but I'm going to show these to you because I think these are two separate stories. At least that's kind of how I read it. For example, in Matthew and Mark, Jesus is walking. He's passing by the sea. But in Luke's gospel, Jesus is actually standing. In Matthew and Mark's gospel, Jesus is all alone. In Luke's gospel, there's actually a crowd pressing in on Jesus. In Matthew and Mark, there's boats. Their boats are in the water. But in Luke, the boats are actually pulled up on the shore. In Matthew, Simon, Peter, and Andrew are fishing in their boats, and John and James are in their boats mending their nets. But in Luke, they're actually out of their boats, the Scripture says, washing their nets. And Andrew isn't even mentioned in the story in Luke. So clearly there are some distinctive differences here in this passage of Scripture that I believe God intended it to be that way. I believe these are two separate stories, both in content as well as purpose. In Matthew and Mark, the four disciples receive a formal call to to enter the preparation for being made fishers of men. In Luke, Simon Peter is clearly the one that's being addressed. As a matter of fact, Jesus uh, addresses uh, not just Simon Peter, but he gets into his boat And this dialogue in this story is between Jesus and Peter. In fact, when we read Luke's account, it looks as though Peter is being treated as one who has already been called. He's being assured that he is going to catch fish with the same success shown to him in this miraculous catch of fish. So I think the whole purpose behind this miracle is that it's a real-life demonstration of the unseen power and success of the Word of God, the gospel. That's what Peter's getting. He's getting a picture of what the gospel is going to do in and through him years to come. In fact, this demonstration of the power of the gospel was so necessary in view of what the disciples were going to be up against with the Jewish and the pagan culture that they lived in, the Jewish and pagan culture that they would have to enter into to share this good news that Jesus repeated it for them before he actually ascended into heaven. And this, the importance of that repetitious uh, miracle catch of fish that takes place actually in John chapter 21 is not understood until we actually read Luke chapter 5. See, it's one thing to call guys into apostleship, but it's quite another thing to demonstrate to them the power of the gospel. So let's dive into this passage and let's look and see what this passage actually teaches us tonight. We're going to read verses 1 through 3, the first part of verse 3. And it says this, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he, was, and he saw two boats. Jesus sees two boats by the lake, not in the water. But the fishermen had gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. And verse 3 says, Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him, Simon Peter, to put out a little from the land. So here's the scene that's unfolding here. Peter and his partners were fishing. They were in business together. 
And they'd spent the entire night fishing with what's called drag nets. And they would make this half circle. They would drag these nets, and, and, and they would pull these nets in. And, and it, I mean, it was back-breaking work. And they would draw these nets in, and they would lean over the boat, and they would pull this net in, and they would pull it in all night, attempting to catch fish. And they'd labored all night and didn't catch a single fish. And at dawn, they'd beached their boats, probably had eaten breakfast, and they were warming in the sun, the Scripture says. They were engaging in the tedious work, the process of washing and mending and arranging their nets for the next morning, laying them out, letting them dry so that they would be prepared to go fishing the next day. But on this particular day, the monotony of the moment was actually broken up by this massive crowd pushing Jesus to the water. And Jesus ends up right in front of Peter's boat. And he steps into Peter's boat. And he says, hey, put this boat out a little bit. And Jesus stands and he begins to use Peter's boat as a floating pulpit. And the scripture says at the end of verse 3, and he sat down in Peter's boat and began to teach the people from the boat. So Jesus actually has Peter's full attention now. He was once mending his net, cleaning his net, washing his net, but now he's in a boat. He can't get out of the boat, and he's hearing this incredible message that Jesus is preaching. But the focus of the story is not on Jesus' message because God didn't have it that Luke would give us the message. The focus of the story is the calling of Peter into ministry. And first with Peter's calling, there's a divine request. I want you to see it. Look at verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. In the Greek, the word put and the word let down are both imperatives in the Greek, which, which is a command. So Jesus is saying, put out, let down your nets. And I want you to think about the significance of what Jesus is asking here, because this is huge. Jesus was asking a man who had not slept all night. He'd been up all night fishing. He was bone dog tired. He'd been pulling in these heavy nets. He had beached his boat. He was cleaning his nets. And Jesus asks this man to put out into the deep, to put the, put the boat in the water, to put out in the deep, and to let down his nets. And I began to think about that. What right did a carpenter have to ask a professional fisherman to put out in the middle of the day, when fishing was done at night in those days, to put out in the middle of the day and to let down his nets. Because it was just right there off the shore. And it was an amazing request that Jesus gave. I mean, if you've ever fished with a professional guide, you know they know what they're doing. They say that, that 90% of the fish are in 10% of the lake, and professional fishermen know how to get to them. I mean, if, if you've ever been with a professional guide, most people that fish with a professional guide have their fish in the boat within 30 minutes to an hour. And there are people that can be on the lake all day and not catch a single fish. And so Jesus is making this command put out, let down, to Simon Peter, who is a professional fisherman. It sounds like a crazy request. If Kevin Van Dam, some of you might know him, he's an older fisherman, but if Kevin Van Dam wanted to give me information about bass fishing, listen, I'm going to tune in and I'm going to listen. And no offense to my sweet, loving mother-in-law, Beth. But if she ever tried to give me fishing advice, she's never done that. But if she did, I'm going to listen kind of half-heartedly, right? Because she doesn't know anything about fishing. She doesn't know the first thing about fishing. And that's exactly the response, I think, that, that Peter kind of had. Because we can see some reluctance in his statement. Look at verse 5. Look at what he says. He says, Master... 
we have toiled all night and took nothing. I mean, it's pretty obvious Peter's not real pumped up about this idea. Some scholars actually say there is an implied rebuke here in the Greek. I mean, night was the best time for fishing, and Peter may be suggesting that when experts uh, uh, fishing at the right time at dark have caught nothing, it's useless. It's useless to put your boat in the middle of the day out into the lake and expect to catch anything. So we can sympathize with Peter's reluctance to do so, yet notice in, at the end of verse 5, there's an obedience. Look at what he says. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Where do you think that came from? What do you think that resulted in? Why did that happen? Because in Luke chapter 4, Jesus had been in Capernaum in the synagogue healing people. Peter had probably witnessed those healings. We know that he witnessed his mother-in-law's healing in Luke chapter 4. We also know that he witnessed the other healings that took place after his mother-in-law was healed. And not just that, but demons were cast out. So, so he knew that Jesus had this incredible power. Yet there was reluctance, but at the same time, at Jesus' divine request, he obeyed it. And I love that. I mean, that should be said of all of us, right? We're Christ followers. When Jesus calls us to do something, we should be responding. That's what I'm going to do. And oftentimes, our response stops with, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. And we don't finish the sentence in our own life. But at your word, I will let down my nets. Jesus' word sometimes comes to us, and there are times when his words to us are demanding and difficult. But there's a need for us to be obedient because obedience results in blessing. Always results in blessing. And when we are obedient in faith, there are no regrets. There's a need for us to follow. And I want you to see what happens next. Jesus issues this divine request, but look at what happens next. There is a divine catch. Look at verses 6 and 7. And when they had done this, the Scripture says, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink so peter who was probably half asleep listening to this message jesus says put out a little bit deeper let down your nets commanded him to do that he was obedient reluctant but obedient and immediately the nets begin to tighten And there is this frantic look on his face. He begins to signal over to his fishing partners, get over here, the nets are about to bust. They come over, they fill both the boats. I'm sure the crowd on the beach was watching. I'm sure there was applause. And the scripture says there were so many fish that both the boats began to sink. And Peter's eyes are wide open. And this wasn't a bad night of fishing turned good. This was a raw outpouring of divine power. This was a massive nature miracle. And Peter realized even the fish of the sea were obedient to Jesus. Now, I can go in and look at all the the characteristics of God that are in this passage of Scripture. We see divine truth. We see divine omniscience. We see divine mercy. We see the the divine power, uh, omnipotence, We see divine holiness, and I don't have time to unpack all those things, but here's what I want you to see. Here's what you need to know. What we see here in this story is the manifest nature of God visibly in Jesus Christ. That's what we see. And look at Peter's response in verse 8. 
But when, when Simon Peter saw it, the scripture says, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see, here in this story, Peter had been brought personally into the sphere of Jesus' incredible kingdom power. Remember, this wasn't the first exposure to Christ's kingdom authority. This time, Jesus ministered in Peter's personal universe, his sea, his boat, his nets. It was unique to Peter, and the call was unique to Peter. And so we see, not only was there a divine request and a divine catch, but the third thing I want you to see, and finally, is there's a divine call. And with this divine call, we see three very specific realities. Here's the first one. And as I, before I read this, before we go through these last three points, I want you to think about your call. I want you to think, think about where you are. I want you to think about what you're about here at this church. I want you to think about the mission that God's given to you. Here's the first one. There is a clear understanding of who Jesus is. Peter realized on this day that Jesus, again, belonged to a sphere which he did not belong. As one commentator said, here was the Lord of fish and fishermen, the Lord of nature, the Lord of men and of their daily work. And I don't know where Peter was at. I don't know if Peter fully understood that, that Jesus was the Christ, but I know that he at least understood that there was a divine presence before him in Jesus Christ. And if we look at verse 5, he calls Jesus master, but when the miracle happens in verse 8, he calls him Lord. Peter knew that there was something special about Jesus. He was in the presence of God. And over the next three years, this reality would begin to grow and expand. And just as it does in our walk, if we ever honestly grab a hold of who Jesus is, our understanding of who Jesus is, Jesus is, the fact that he is God of the universe, our eyes are open to that. And when we begin to see that, our lives become different. So there's a clear understanding of who Jesus is. Here's the second thing. There, there's this fearful reality of our sinfulness, a sinfulness that actually separates us from God. Peter, Peter not only had a, a clear understanding of, of whose presence he was in now, but Peter was overcome with this awareness of his own sinfulness. Look at verse 8, the latter part. He says this, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, I don't know what sins were flashing in Peter's mind at this time, but here's what I can tell you about sin in the presence of God. When you're in the presence of God, your sinfulness your waywardness, your repeated offenses always stand out. They always stand out. That's what happens when we get into the presence of God. Peter here is in moral agony, seeing God right before him in Christ. And he drops to his knees and he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. We see this numerous times throughout the scripture. Isaiah scripture says in Isaiah 6, 5, he saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted in verse 1. And his first thought was not adoration and fear. He felt uh, such moral trauma in respect to his own sin that he literally cried out, Woe is me. And Job had much the same experience. In Job 42, 5 and 6, he says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And John would write in the book of Revelation, When I saw him... I fell at his feet as though I were dead. See, this response 
to Jesus is a great grace because moral agony and inner wreathing over our sin is the beginning steps to embracing this incredible grace of forgiveness that we find in Christ. And Peter was in this spiritual posture that is described for us in Isaiah 61. He was poor, he was in prison, he was blind, he was oppressed. And in moral agony in Christ's presence at this early stage of his spiritual development, Peter is feeling unworthy. He's not understanding really what's happening, but he feels unworthy. And he literally asks Jesus to go away. Now we know that as his, he grows in his faith, that's not the result of what happens. But early on, he's saying, just get away. I, I can't be around you. You're, you're, you're too holy. I'm, I'm, I'm not even worthy to be in your presence. And there are times in our own life we think about who Christ is and we have to resubmit ourselves. We have to recognize who we are because we are quick to uh, sometimes uh, get ourselves stuck where we can't get out. We're quick to lose our way. We're quick to want to throw in the towel. We are quick to be discouraged. And that's what happened to Peter for a period of his life. As a matter of fact, I believe Peter was this guy who was up and down in his journey. He's following Christ. He's a, he's a courageous warrior. He's brave. He's got leadership qualities, and all of a sudden, he's sticking his foot in his mouth. And it's repeated over and over and over. And we know that Peter ended up denying Christ three times. But the beauty and the reality of this particular story comes full circle for us in John chapter 21. You remember that incredible story in John chapter 21? After the resurrection, Peter had denied Christ three times. He was distraught. He was bothered. He was the leader of the pack. And here he was denying Christ. And Jesus told him he was going to deny him three times before the rooster crowed. And Peter said, no, I'll never deny you. And said, yeah, you're going to deny me. And lo and behold, he denied him. And so Peter's bothered. He's struggling. As a matter of fact, the scripture says that he went back to fishing in John chapter 21. He went back to fishing and he led the rest of the disciples who were fishermen to go back with him. And the scripture says that he had fished all night with his disciple fishing buddies and caught nothing again. And it's a beautiful story because Jesus is standing on the bank that morning. The sun's coming up on the horizon. The guys are coming in from fishing. No fish has been caught. And they look out on the beach, and there's a silhouette of a man. And it's Jesus. They don't know it's Jesus, but Jesus calls out, Did you catch anything? guy said, nope, another bad night of fishing. And Jesus throws out that old familiar phrase, let down your nets. And they let down their nets, and the scripture says in John chapter 21 that they draw their nets in, and there's this incredible fish. And John looks over at Peter and says to him, it's the Lord. And Peter picks up his coat, he dives into the water, he swims to the shore, and he embraces Jesus. And I believe he probably fell at Jesus' feet because he knew and he reflected back to that time when he was on the beach mending his nets and Jesus told him to get in his boat and he got to hear a message and all of a sudden he said, let out into the deep. Two times before, this third time was the time that really changed Peter's life. And I thought about where Peter went at that time. He went to Jesus' feet. And isn't, it that, isn't that the way it is with us? The more we know of our sin and the more we know of Jesus, the more we will run to him. 
the more we know of Jesus and the more we know of our sin, the more we're going to run to him. He and only he has made the sacrifice for our iniquities, taking away our sin. He and only he can forgive. He and only he can set us free from our past. He and only he can put our lives back together again when we mess it up. Because he's Jesus and he loves us and he has a plan for us. I read this morning in my quiet time, and by the way, this passage of scripture, many always gets bothered with me because I seldom ever go back to my old scripture sermons or old sermon files and pull a sermon out and preach it. I'm always wanting to preach kind of what God is saying to my heart. So this is a passage that, that I actually read in my quiet time just a few days ago as I was thinking, God, this is, and I shared portions and pieces of this passage of scripture with my young Manason at, at breakfast because this passage of scripture spoke to me. It spoke volumes to me because if you'll notice that it said that these men had fished all night and caught nothing. And just a little bit later, Jesus said, follow me and you're going to be, you're going to be doing something that's eternal. And I thought about those two scenarios, pursuing things in life. You ever notice that, that we do things in life and we can have a good success, we can have a kind of a medium success, and sometimes we just have utter failures. But when you're doing things that matter to the kingdom, that matter to God, they're eternal. And everything matters. And it lasts forever. I love that. I was reading this this morning in my quiet time in Luke chapter 7, verses 30 through 36 through 50. You don't have to turn there. I'll tell you the story. It's the story of the woman who came to Jesus. She was an adulterous woman. Uh, Jesus was in one of the Pharisees' houses. The Pharisee was entertaining Jesus, and this adulterous woman came into Jesus' presence. She was sinful. She bowed at Jesus' feet. She began to, uh, uh, her tears from her eyes began to fall on Jesus' feet. She was kissing Jesus' feet. She, was, she had uh, a perfume that she was wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. And the Pharisee was bothered by that. And there was a beautiful picture there because the picture that the Scripture gives us when Luke tells us in Luke chapter 7, the reason God included that in the Scripture was to help us understand how we get into the presence of Christ. See, we don't get into the presence of Christ because of our goodness. You don't get into the presence of Christ because you go to church, because you read the Bible, because you pray, because you come from a good family. You get into the presence of Christ because you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And when you recognize your sin, that opens the door for us to come into his presence. Amen? That's the picture of what it means to be in a relationship with God. And there's a beautiful picture for us as we think about what it really means to come into Christ's presence. You see, the opposite of the, the, the fact that the more we know of our sin and the more we know of Christ, the more we will run to him, the opposite of that is true. The less we see of our sin and the less we get to know Jesus, the less likely we are to rely on him, i.e., the Pharisee and the woman in her sin, i.e., the Pharisee who's taking his big gift to the, to the offering plate and the, and the little widow with her little mite. And Jesus says she's put in more than those guys could ever put in. So we see, thirdly and finally, because of that, there's an awareness and ultimately embracing of our mission. We see our sin. We see the greatness of who Christ is. We see us in our sin and our need for a Savior. And then thirdly, there's an awareness and ultimately an embracing of our mission. Here in Luke 5, Peter's imperfect perceptions had most of his calling right. The divine presence was indeed before him. 
He knew himself to be a great sinner because his cry out, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a great sinner, that was a sign of humility. And Jesus says to Simon here, he says to him, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. I want you to underline that phrase, catching men, if you have a pen, because it's an important phrase. It's a combination of two Greek words, Zeus, alive, and agreeing, which means to catch or to, or to hunt. And the exact uh, uh, sense of this word is, literally means to catch alive. That's what it means, to catch alive. Jesus was saying to Peter, from now on, Peter, you're going to be catching men alive. Catching mankind alive, not for death, would be Peter's mission. Of course, this was famously fulfilled in Peter's life because Luke would later go on to tell us in the book of Acts of Jesus' incredible message and 3,000 being saved at Pentecost and a little bit later when he was arraigned before the Sanhedrin, 5,000 coming to know Christ because it was through Peter's life that numerous people would come to Christ. And, and this prophetic statement that was made over Peter three years before Jesus would die would come true. But it wasn't until after this passage in Luke 5, three years later, that Peter, Peter would actually experience this truth because he would only experience it minimally for those three years. Again, his life was up and down. It wouldn't be until this incident in John chapter 21 that Peter would truly begin catching men and women to life. Peter would actually have to return to the shores of the Sea of Galilee to finally get it. And three years later, the story in Luke chapter 5 would come full circle, and the power of the gospel message to catch people alive would make sense to him. It would no longer be Peter's ability to lead or his power or his gifts, but the power of God ultimately loving him, being manifested in the sacrificial gift of his son on the cross in his glorious resurrection. That's what ushered in the power of the gospel message that we read about in the, books of, in the book of Acts. And I love it. And I don't have time to go into it. I wish I did. But there's a, there's a play on words in John chapter 21 because Jesus is there around the fire and, they, and he prepares fish and he eats fish to show him that he's alive. And there's lots of conversation going on. And I think there was probably a silent moment. They're all gathered, probably leaning against a, an old stump. And Jesus is just is completely quiet. And Jesus looks over at, at Peter. And he asks him a very important question. He says, Peter, do you agape me? He asks him the word, do you love me? We get it in our Greek language, in, in our English language, but in the Greek it's agape. Agape is the perfect kind of love. And when Peter responds back, he doesn't say, yes, Lord, you know that I agape you. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Phileo is the, love, is the word for love. That it's, it's a brotherly love. And what Peter was saying is, Lord, you know I can't love you with agape love. And so there was this, again, the silence went over the, the guys gathering all his buddies and think, man, Peter's being, he's being picked on here. And Jesus asks the question again. He said, and, 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 and he says to Peter after that first time asking, he says to Peter, feed my sheep. And then there's, again, the silence, and Jesus asks the question again, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. He says, tend my lambs. So now that you can cut the tension in this campfire scene with a knife. 
I mean, here's Peter. He's denied Jesus three times. He's feeling terrible about it. He's gone back to his old fishing trade. He's caught this incredible fish, amount of fish. They're on the bank. They're, fish, they're, they're eating with Jesus. Jesus is risen. The risen Lord's there. God is there in his presence, and he's asking him this question, and Jesus asks this third time, but he asks it a little bit different. He says, Peter, do you phileo me? He didn't ask him, did you agape me? He said, do you phileo me? And Peter's response was, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And I think the scripture actually goes on to say that that Peter was troubled by Jesus' question in this third question. And I think it's because, I think, because it was the way Jesus had asked it. He knew that Jesus possessed an agape love, but he could not understand why Jesus would ask him, do you phileo me? He couldn't put that together. And I think the reality in that moment came full circle for him because he began to see who he really was in Christ. Apart from his works, apart from his gifts, apart from his abilities, he began to see that he was absolutely nothing. He was hopeless without the agape love on top of him without the agape love covering him. Agape love is an all-encompassing, life-altering love that we don't possess within ourselves. And it's not until we truly grasp his love for us that the power of the gospel message in our own hearts, that the mission that we've actually been given all of a sudden begins to make sense to us. You see, Jesus gave him the mission three years earlier, but he didn't understand it until three years later. I don't think every believer in our culture truly grasps Jesus' love for them, because if they did, it would alter how they steward the gospel message they actually actually possess. True faith, true faith. When we put it in Christ, it changes us, and the mission becomes real to us. It's just not something we possess. It's something that we want to share with other people. And this, this truth helps me better understand. One of my favorite people to read is John Piper, but it helps me understand John Piper's life mission statement. It was his church's mission statement back when he started his church, Bethlehem Bible Church. And Piper writes this. He says, most people in the world have no experience of deep and abiding joy even though it is something we all desperately long for. The assurance that true happiness can be known fully and forever is a hope that billions of people live every day without. This is a tragedy. And John Piper's dream was to change that. His aim was to help people everywhere embrace a profound truth that changes everything about life and eternity. And he writes, we were all created for something greater than ourselves. We were all formed for something awesome and magnificent. We were made to know glory. God's glory. And the deepest longing of the human heart can only be fully satisfied by pursuing that glory. And his famous life mission reads as follows, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I believe that's the light that came on for Peter in John chapter 21. That's the light that Jesus was prophetically speaking over Peter's life three years before when he said, you're going to become fishers of men. And the question that we have to ask ourselves tonight is this. Is that gospel light, the glory of God, something that we really know? Because when you enter into the glory of God, 
when the Old Testament prophets cried out, holy, he fell on his knees and cried, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And when you do that, you recognize your sin in your life and you recognize your need for a Savior. And all of a sudden, the mission that brought you into the fold becomes your mission, becomes something that you're passionate about. And I began to think about that in my own life. Matter of fact, for the past couple of years, I realized in my own life this is something that, that I've been missing. I mean, being in ministry and preaching and, and doing ministry the, the way that I always thought God wanted me to, I found myself in a place of burnout. And, and I found myself needing to recalibrate. And today, I'm learning again what it means to, to devote my life to pursuing satisfaction in God alone. I'm rediscovering what God showed Peter in John chapter 21. And I, I just think people go through that process. I was at it for 17 years in a church. Our church had the greatest giving we'd ever had in a year. We had the greatest attendance we'd have in a year. We just added new buildings, and we got new buildings we were adding. And God kind of said to me, Mark, it's time for you to, to step away. It's the hardest thing I'd ever done. But I did it because I want what's described in John chapter 21 in my own life. And I'm here to encourage you tonight not to think about the mission, because here's what I will tell you. Once you get the glory of God settled in your heart and you begin to recognize that's your ultimate purpose, the mission is easy. The mission becomes something that you're passionate about. You see, if, if you're going to church and it's all about the worship and it's all about the lesson that you're teaching, or for me, it's all about the message that you're preaching, it's all about getting the message across, if it's all about your quiet time, if it's all about your class and it's all about this building and what's happening here and, and you've lost focus of the glory of God, you're way off mission because your life and my life is about bringing God glory in everything we do. And when we do that, the mission begins to connect for us and we begin to see we once were lost, but now we're found and what we have found needs to be shared with those out there. And the mission becomes our mission. And so the big check in your spirit, I hope, tonight is, it is in my spirit. And I'm still in the journey. I'm just telling you, I'm still in the journey. My wife knows this is a big thing for me to come and stand and to preach because I wasn't quite sure I was ready. I hope what I share tonight makes sense. I hope what I share tonight is ministering to your heart because I want for you what I want for me, and that is this. I'm 51 and the thing that I keep rolling over my head, the keep, thing I keep sharing, the thing that I share with my people uh, that I was a, doing life with for se almost 17 years was that I want my life to count for the kingdom. I don't want my life to count for a church. I don't want my life to count for how good of a preacher I am or how good I am in a quiet time. or what. I, I, all those things are, are relative to bringing God glory. And man, if I can get that picture of just seeing Christ in everything that I do, glorifying him in everything that I say, and every thought that I think, my life's going to begin to kind of come back together. And the pieces are going to begin to fit again the way that God's always intended them to. Let's pray.
Before I pray, I just want to ask you to think just for a few moments. I'm not going to have an invitation, but I just want you to kind of think about where you are in your walk with the Lord. I want you to think about how you view Christ, how you see your sin. I want you to think about the mission that you've been given. Remember I said at the very beginning, the title of this message is Fishing Matters. I want to add something to that statement. Fishing matters only when Jesus matters most. Let that sink in for just a moment. I'm not here again to beat you over the head about being evangelistic. I'm here to help you recognize the value of what it means to bring glory to God with your life, all-encompassing. Because then fishing really does matter. Because Jesus will really matter most. And I want you to know that's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for this church, your Sunday school class, your pastor, your ministers that are here, Jim, worship leader, your staff, this community. I pray that as you paint a picture of this community with your life, that, that people could say, you know what matters most in that person's life? You know what matters most in that family? You know what matters most in that marriage? It's that God be glorified. Because when God is glorified, the pieces fit together because we're doing what we were created to do. That's the first most important thing that we could ever do. God, we love you. We thank you for loving us. We thank you, God, for the beauty of your word. And I pray, God, right now that just in the quietness of this room, God, you would minister to hearts as only you can. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you, God, that when your word is preached, that, God, it never returns void. And so, Father, I pray that the truth of this passage in Luke chapter 5 could come to life for everyone within the sound of my voice. I pray, God, that whatever needs to be taken away from this passage of Scripture, as you have intended it to be taken away, I pray, God, that it would be applied, that it would be lived, and that you would be glorified and honored because of it. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for having me tonight.